Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Luke 24. We've been making our way through the book of Psalms lately, but this morning as we focus in particular on the resurrection, we'll look at one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We'll read Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. And we'll read all the way down to verse 35. Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. So, of course, Luke writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, that very day, two of them, that is two disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these happened, these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as as if He were going farther. But they urged Him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he banished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, again, we are grateful for the resurrection of Christ and that in his resurrection, the work of giving himself over as a ransom was received and our justification secured as by the resurrection he conquered sin and death itself. And Lord, we see in this passage that one of the very first things he does when he appears to his disciples is to draw their attention back to the Word. He wants us. He wants your people to know you and to believe you through the Word that we would see Him throughout all of it and recognize that all of Scripture from beginning to end has as its primary focus Christ Jesus and His sufferings and subsequent glories. I pray, Lord, that You would give us eyes to see the beauty of Christ in His death and in His resurrection throughout the whole of Scripture, and that we would be a people who as we open up the Scriptures, and as we read from them and hear from You speaking through Your divinely inspired Word, that like these disciples, our heart would burn within us as we encounter the risen Christ through them. May we never be a people who neglect the Word, and may we never be a people who are slow to believe all that is written. So Father, give us eyes to see and hearts to receive all that You have said about Christ and His glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is, of course, without question that the Resurrection is an event. It is a uh, a moment in history that changed everything. It is uh, a moment that, of course, is inseparable from the atoning work of Christ on the cross. One without the other provides no redemption. His death, apart from His resurrection, makes Him nothing more than just another failed Messiah. And His resurrection, apart from His death, is a miracle of God that has no atoning benefits for us and our sins. They have to be held together. 
But because he died, because he rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, all who believe in him and and, and cast their lives upon him can rest securely in the hope that because he lives now, we also will live in him. The resurrection has many, many far-reaching implications to it. It touches every single aspect of Christian doctrine. Everything within Scripture. It is the foundation of all of our hope. If there is no resurrection, Paul said, if it never happened, if it's just a myth, if it's just a story that some people in the ancient world made up, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. There's no Christianity apart from the resurrection. As much as some progressive or some liberal Christian may want to argue that you can hold on to the essence of Christianity without the historical resurrection, the Bible itself explicitly states this is impossible. It all hinges on what happened in history. A man, a God-man, named Jesus of Nazareth, who proclaimed Himself to be the Son of God, the Christ, the long-awaited for Messiah, gave His life on behalf of sinners and rose again on the third day to conquer sin and death forever. This is where everything must begin. This doctrine touches on everything. And because of this, there are, of course, many different aspects of the resurrection that we could meditate on together this morning and for all eternity. We could think about how the resurrection is what secures our justification. We could think about how the resurrection is the power of God in the new birth. The the, the very power that God worked in and through Christ by raising Him from the dead is the very same power that He uses when the Gospel goes forth to dead sinners and it causes them to be alive. It's the power of the resurrection that is at work in conversion. Or of course, we could think about how the resurrection of Christ guarantees the future resurrection of all believers. But this morning, I want us to consider the connection between the resurrection and Scripture. The resurrection and the Holy Bible. You see, there have been some in very recent years who have drawn a very sharp division between the resurrection and the Bible. They tell us that we can no longer speak to the world and say things like, the Bible says this, or the Bible says that. The world has rejected the Bible as an authority. 
And so it does no one any good to quote the Bible or to appeal to the Bible or to stand on the Bible when speaking to the world. They don't accept it. So you ought not to use it. And even for some Christians, we are told, if they are having some problem believing something in the Bible, some problem accepting maybe the truthfulness of the creation account, did God really create the world in six days and rest on the seventh? Or maybe they're having a a problem accepting certain miracles we find in Scripture. Was Jonah really in the belly of a whale? Did the sun really stand still? Was the Red Sea really parted? Maybe if there are Christians, professing Christians, who are struggling to receive and believe these particular miracles or anything else in Scripture, it's perfectly okay to tell them, well, you really don't need that. You don't have to accept all of that because Christianity doesn't depend on it. Not everything in the Bible needs to be believed. Okay, so if we shouldn't do that, if we shouldn't receive all of what Scripture has given to us, or we don't need to appeal to the Bible, well then what should we do? Well, we are told we must appeal to the resurrection. In our apologetics to the world, we must formulate a cumulative case for the resurrection. We should muster all of our greatest arguments for the reliability of the resurrection and present our evidence to an unbelieving world for them to then consider and evaluate. And if we do that, we're told, we will both demonstrate the rationality and objectivity of our claims, and perhaps through that process, we'll persuade others to see Christ for who He is. And for the Christian, as long as they say that they believe in the resurrection, they don't necessarily need to receive and believe everything else in Scripture. The resurrection is the main thing. And then everything else can be separated and put into these categories of somewhat important or not really important at all. And you hear these kinds of things said by the great stalwarts of the faith. The great defenders of orthodoxy. Men like Andy Stanley, who have stood firm on the gospel of Christ for many years, or not. Men who have been gifted to us from on high, as it were, who have gifted us with their profound wisdom that we should unhitch the Old Testament from the new. That we should even make a radical division between Scripture itself, because apparently, we're told, that's what the apostles did. Peter, James, Paul, Stanley says, elected to unhitch 
the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures. Christianity doesn't need to be propped up by the Jewish scriptures. For men like this, who just to be clear, are not friends of the gospel. By saying such words to so many people, I mean, it it would be bad enough if you just said it to one person, but to have so many people you are influencing and to spread this kind of unbiblical nonsense makes you an enemy of Christ, not a friend. But for men like this, there is a radical division that is made between the resurrection and Scripture. There is a belief that one can be accepted without the other. And the assertion that is made, and in fact it is nothing more than an assertion, is that this was the way of the apostles. This is what we find as an example to be followed from the New Testament itself. I want to show you this morning that this is not at all the case. This is, again, a twisting. This is a serpent-in-the-garden-level deceit. There is no hint that the resurrection can be believed apart from the Scriptures. In fact, the opposite is the case. Jesus Himself links, connects the resurrection to the Scriptures. He even proves, in fact, when He's speaking to these disciples on the road to Emmaus, He proves the resurrection by appealing to the Scriptures. And you would think, you would think that after he's just risen from the dead, he wouldn't need to do that. You can just say, look at me. I'm here. I'm alive. Your Messiah lives. But that's not what he does. He, in fact, veils himself and points them to Scripture. He grounds the resurrection. He proves the resurrection first from Scripture. You wonder, why on earth would the disciples need to have Scripture as their ground when they could just say they have seen Him? And you would think, especially if the Jewish Scriptures were now being unhitched from the Christian faith and from the New Covenant, you would think that Jesus would have no need and no interest in explaining His resurrection from those very Jewish Scriptures. And you certainly would think that it would be completely out of place for Jesus to rebuke His disciples for not believing those Jewish Scriptures. 
and all that the prophets had spoken. For then, his disciples could have simply said to Jesus, well, we didn't think they were all that important. Why are you chastising us for not believing these scriptures when we don't need them? Of course, as we look at the text, this is not how Jesus fought. It's certainly not how Luke fought, and thus it is not how any of the apostles fought either. And what we find in this passage this morning is that Jesus believed the resurrection and the Scriptures must be held together. The Scriptures bear witness to the resurrection. They prophesy of the resurrection. They foretell of the resurrection. And therefore, they even provide the greatest apologetic evidence for the resurrection. I hear it very often, even from, from, from bright minds who make really good historical arguments from the New Testament and from the first century evidence that we have about the resurrection. They, they make historical arguments for the resurrection. But, but Jesus is saying, we can, we can do that, but it's got to be grounded in the Word of God because it's the Word of God primarily that gives birth ultimately to the resurrection. The scriptures are dependent on the resurrection. The resurrection is dependent on the scriptures. The resurrection is indeed but a fulfillment of what the scriptures had said. And so the two must be taken together. You reject the scriptures, you relegate them to a position of little importance, and you really have no foundation for accepting the resurrection. And of course, if you reject the resurrection, you really have no basis for claiming to be a Christian. They are intimately linked together. And again, we see this being demonstrated by Jesus to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, beginning in verse 13, of course, Luke tells us about one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus that occurred on the first day of the week. Some of the women had just come from Jesus' tomb. They found it to be empty and they saw angels who told them that He was not here, that He had risen. And then these women go and they tell the disciples that the tomb is empty and that these angels had told Him told them that, that he had been risen. And so during this time, the word had began to spread that the tomb was empty and that Jesus' body wasn't there. But at this point, of course, many of the disciples were still ignorant as to what exactly that meant. They're not putting the pieces together from the Scriptures. Many of them still had not seen him physically resurrected from the dead. And so here, Luke tells us about two of these disciples in particular. 
They were on their way from Jerusalem where all of these events were happening to Emmaus, which we're told is about seven or so miles north of Jerusalem. And on their way to Emmaus, they're talking about all of these things that had just taken place. From what they mentioned a little bit further on in the passage, they're, of course, talking about Jesus' life, talking about His ministry, talking about the fact that He was a, a prophet. But they're also talking about the fact, and probably most importantly, uh, about the things that had just happened within the past couple of days. That He had been given over. That He had been crucified. That He had been betrayed. And, and they get sad that they had been hoping that He was indeed the Redeemer of Israel. We're told, in fact, that they were, they were sad. Their, their hopes that Jesus was the Messiah had been dashed into pieces because their view of the Messiah, their understanding was based on traditional beliefs that had nothing to do with the Messiah dying. Here He was, or here He had been, now crucified. So in their minds... We had hoped He was the Redeemer of Israel. Though it had been the case that Jesus had often preached about His necessary death and His necessary resurrection, it, it wasn't getting through those traditional beliefs that they had been raised believing was like a wall. They were blinders that even as they're hearing these words come out of Jesus' mouth, they're not registering. So on the road, they're talking about His death. They're talking about this report that the women had just relayed to the disciples. And they're wondering, what could this mean? What do we make of this? Why is the tomb empty? Where could his body be? Certainly as they're walking to Emmaus, a many miles walk, they've got all kinds of things that they can be talking about because of what had just happened over the weekend. But then Luke tells us in verse 15 that Jesus shows up. He meets the disciples on the road. He probably comes up behind them because they're all end up, they all end up going in the same direction towards Emmaus. But when he comes to them, verse 16 says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is, this is passive on their part. So Jesus here is the one who by his divine power is shutting their eyes so that even though they are seeing him, they don't really see him. I was sharing with the, the kids and, and Leah last night, it, it reminds me very much of like when I'm, I'm in the kitchen and I open the refrigerator and I'm looking for some cheese. Right? I open the drawer and I'm looking around where it's supposed to be and there's nothing there. Says it's in the fridge. I'm looking. It's not there. And then she says, "Okay, I'll come and show you where it is." And terror strikes my heart. <laughs> and what happens? She comes, and there's the cheese. 
<laughs> it appears. It's, it's as if the Lord is uh, keeping me from seeing what is right in front of me so that her patience can be tried. These disciples are in the presence of Jesus and yet they can't see Him because their eyes are being kept by Christ Himself. And then Jesus asks them a question. He says, what are you talking about? And the way He asks the question clearly indicates to the disciples that He's clueless as to the things that have happened recently in Jerusalem. And so they sort of scoff at him. They say in verse 18, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? You've been living under a rock? I mean, you're leaving Jerusalem right now and you don't know what we're talking about? You haven't heard about these things? And then Jesus feigns ignorance again. In verse 19, he says, what things? Which whenever I read that, it just makes me think, you know, there is some humor in Jesus. <laughs> He's playing with them here. He knows exactly what they're talking about. But he asks them, what things? So they bring him up to speed. All the things about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his ministry, his works, his teachings, his crucifixion, and now this, this new report that his body is missing from the tomb. These things. And after they finish explaining all the events that had happened, and clearly at this point they still don't know what it all means, Jesus then rebukes them. He says, oh foolish ones. Perhaps it could be rendered even unintelligent, uh, dull, ignorant. You, you might could even say something like stupid. Maybe a little strong, but that's basically what he's saying. It's a strong word. It's the same one that Paul uses really in, in anger at the Galatians, when they're abandoning the gospel. And the first thing he says to them is, Oh foolish Galatians! Who's bewitching you? This is what Jesus says to these disciples. Foolish ones. Now, again, the disciples don't know that this is Jesus. Right? This is just some random guy on the road, and the first thing he says to them basically as he meets them on the road is, you're fools. Question is, why does he say this? Verse 25 again, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? In other words, this was supposed to happen. It was necessary. And why? Because that's what Scripture taught. That's what the Word of God had said. 
long ago that you've had at your fingertips. And of course, at the time, the Scriptures certainly didn't include the New Testament. We're talking about the Old Testament here. The Jewish Scriptures. The Hebrew Bible. Genesis to Malachi, or as the Jews divide their Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets and the Writings. These Scriptures, your Old Testament tells you, as it told them, everything you need to know about Christ's death and His resurrection and subsequent glory. And Jesus rather than just appearing to the disciples and showing them that He was resurrected from the dead, what does He do? He points them back to their Bibles. He wants His disciples to believe all of the words of Scripture before He reveals Himself to them. He is not in any way disconnecting or unhitching any of His works, whether that be His life, death, or resurrection from any part of Scripture. Rather, He's grounding everything in them. And so Luke tells us in verse 27 that beginning with Moses, which is the law Genesis to Deuteronomy and all the prophets, which includes the narratives and the wisdom literature. So basically, from beginning to end in the Old Testament, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Jesus wants His disciples to be grounded not just in the things they see with their own eyes, but most especially, He wants them to be grounded in the words of God. And He wants them to believe all of those words. Why would that be? There's a lot of reasons. But maybe one, going back to the very beginning, is because that's always been man's fundamental problem. God reveals His Word. He tells us who He is. He tells us what He requires of us. And we say, no. I'd rather believe the serpent than your words. It has always been our most basic problem. Being slow to believe all of the Word of God. And so Jesus wants them to be grounded in Scripture and to believe all of His words. Or just as it was said to the rich man who pleaded that someone would be sent to his family from the dead to warn them about hell in Luke 16, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if you do not listen to the Word of God, if you do not accept Scripture, neither will you believe even if someone 
rises from the dead. We were having this conversation last night. I mean, it's... People, people have a hard time wrapping their mind around that. You, you hear, you know, even, even an atheist will say, you know, if God shows himself to me, if he rips open the heavens and he says, here I am, or if Christ were at this moment to, to appear again in bodily form, if this happens, then I will believe. And Jesus says, no, you wouldn't. You would continue to shut your eyes to everything that is clearly right in front of you. Why? Because the human heart is fundamentally in rebellion against God. And we come up with all kinds of reasons to minimize and justify that rebellion. Well, we have, we have legitimate reasons for not believing the Word of God. He hasn't given us enough evidence. No, you know what He's given you? His Word. And that's all you need. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Grounding the disciples in Scripture. Grounding them in the Word of God. The Scriptures bear witness to Christ. They are all about Him. The Scriptures are not just random stories about an ancient people who experienced all kinds of different miraculous events throughout history. The Scriptures from beginning to end are all about Christ. They point to Him. They lead to Him. They are inspired by Him. He is the primary author of all of Scripture and all of it finds its fulfillment in Him. Jesus wanted His disciples on the road to Emmaus and He wants His disciples 2,000 years later to read the Scriptures and embrace the Scriptures. But when they do, you would see Him in all of it. You and I, we are not the primary subjects of Scripture. We are partakers. We are beneficiaries of the works of God. But the primary story that Scripture is communicating is the story of Christ and His work to redeem a wretched people by giving His self over to the curse of death and then rising again, conquering the very power of sin and death. All of Scripture is ultimately about Him. Now, of course, in many places in the Old Testament, you see Jesus through very direct prophecies. One could think of very easy examples like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with that one. 
Isaiah prophesies there about the servant of the Lord some 750 years before Jesus ever comes on the scene. And he describes this servant as one who will be marred. He will be beaten so badly that he's disfigured. He's almost unrecognizable. He will be a man who is despised and rejected by men. He is a a man who's a man of sorrows, we're told. Who's acquainted with grief. He will be killed like a lamb who's led to slaughter. But Isaiah says even more that not only will he be killed, but this servant, his death will be a substitutionary death. It will have an atoning effect on the people of God. He says that the servant will be smitten by God and afflicted. He will be pierced for our transgressions. Pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Indeed, the Lord will lay on Him the iniquity of us all. But as the servant further on in the chapter bears our sins through His death, His people will be healed. His soul will make an offering for guilt. You have in this chapter a very direct prophecy about the work of the Messiah and His sufferings. What His death would accomplish, even how He would be treated and buried. His grave would be made with the wicked. Fulfilled in Jesus as He's crucified next to criminals. And also with a rich man in His death. Fulfilled by His burial in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But even more, Isaiah says that His story will not end with His death, but will continue on through everlasting days, through a necessary resurrection. He says in verse 10, when His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. He's dead. He dies by being pierced, by being slaughtered. And yet, when this offering is made, He will then see His offspring. And Isaiah says, He will prolong His days. He will live. He will have many days beyond His death. This is His resurrection and His subsequent glories. And this, of course, is a very direct prophecy that shows us how the Old Testament Scriptures bore witness to His death and burial and resurrection. And you could point to many other prophecies like this. You could point to the promise of of Eve, or or that Eve received, that she would have an offspring who crushes the head of the serpent. You could point to the promises given to Judah, and after that, David, who, who an offspring would come from him, who would rule forever. You could point to the promise that David's Lord would be exalted at the right hand of God, and many, many more. 
But of course, direct prophecies aren't the only way that the Old Testament bears witness to Christ. You also have what we might call indirect prophecies, typologies, patterns, shadows, things that occur again and again and again and are ultimately fulfilled as they occur finally in the life of Jesus. People who arise throughout Scripture whose very lives are images, if you will, of the life of Jesus to come. We considered something like this when we did an overview of the Psalms and saw how in the very structure of the Psalms we are, we are instructed to read the Psalms as ultimately being about Christ. But consider with me for a moment some other patterns or shadows we find in Scripture that reach their fulfillment in Christ. Consider Isaac, whom we read about earlier in the story of Abraham when God tested his obedience and he had to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Isaac, of course, was a son of promise. He was a son through whom all of the nations would be blessed. He was Abraham's only begotten son through Sarah, the woman through whom the promise would be fulfilled. And Abraham takes Isaac and they prepare an altar for a sacrifice. And Isaac asks his father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham replies, in faith, no doubt, God will provide a lamb for Himself. And then he binds Isaac and he lays him on the altar. And the moment that he brings the knife down to slaughter his only son, God stops him. Why? Because as Abraham rightly discerned, it would ultimately be the Lord Himself who would provide that sacrifice. Only that provision would not ultimately be an animal, but it would be the only begotten Son of God. The Lamb of God. Slain, slain before the foundations of the earth. In fact, as the author of Hebrews is reflecting on Abraham's faith in this very moment, he makes the argument that there is indeed a very real sense in which a resurrection takes place. A, a foreshadowing of a resurrection because Abraham gives his son over to death and then figuratively speaking, receives him back to life. The story, of course, is about Abraham and Isaac, but it is also about much more. It is about God's determination to keep His promises and to provide an atoning sacrifice through His own Son. Well, consider with me for a moment another one. Let's consider Joseph. Was not Joseph betrayed by his own kinsmen, his brothers, and stripped naked and thrown into a pit to die? A pit which all throughout Scripture is figuratively um, compared to the very grave itself. The pit is, is equal to Sheol, 
the place of the dead. Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a grave. And did his father not, when he learns about this, weep over his son's death? And was he not then drawn up afterwards from the pit by the providential hand of God and then exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh from which position he would save his kinsmen, the very kinsmen who rejected him from certain death. You have in someone like Joseph, but a shadow of a greater Joseph to come, of Christ. The events of Joseph's life were not mere coincidences. They were not random selections from Joseph's life that Moses decided to write about. His life bore witness prophetically to one who would be even greater than Joseph who would be rejected by his kinsmen, who would go down into the pit of Sheol, but who would not be abandoned there, who would be raised from the pit, exalted at the right hand of God, and who would then save the very people who rejected him. The life of Joseph points forward to the life of Jesus. We'll just consider one more. Let's think of Moses. He was raised up to be a savior of Israel. He was a man who spoke face to face with God. He was a man through whom a covenant was made between God and his people. By his hands, many signs and wonders were performed. He spoke all of the words of God as they were given to him. He was faithful in God's house to prophesy to the people. And was he not rejected? Over and over, this prophet, this man of God, sent by God, rejected by his own people. Isn't it the case that they sought to kill him, sought to overthrow him, sought to challenge his authority? And still, what did Moses do? He interceded on their behalf. He offered atoning sacrifices on their behalf to avert the wrath of God from them. He typifies the greater prophet to come. We could go on and on to consider the sacrifices, the temple, the exodus, the exile, Noah, Abraham, David, and more. The point is that all of Scripture is ultimately about Christ. Through direct prophecies, through indirect prophecies, through patterns and types and shadows, everything points to Him. And on the road to Emmaus, when He's with His disciples, before He ever reveals who He is, He grounds them in all the Scriptures. 
He explains to them how everything written in Moses and the prophets was about Him. Even further on, beyond this particular passage, when He appears to even more of His disciples in verses 36 and following, He does the same exact thing for them. He appears to them and He teaches them the Scriptures. He says in Luke 24, verse 44, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then, He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. The resurrection, friends, has many, many implications. There are many glorious truths that arise from it. It gives we who are united to Christ by faith eternal hope. The hope of a resurrection to come. But one of its many other implications is that all of God's words, all that was spoken through the prophets is true. And God, in His faithfulness, has kept His word. The resurrection is a confirmation and a fulfillment of Scripture. And now that this has happened, the resurrected Christ doesn't instruct His people to abandon Scripture, but rather, He instructs them all to believe it. To believe every word in it. And so as we celebrate the resurrection today, let us, of course, rejoice. Let us praise God and worship Him that He has conquered the grave that all who are united to Him will likewise conquer the grave. Let us worship Him for His victory over sin and His marvelous grace that has been poured out on sinners through Him. But let us also hold fast to the Word, taking as our grounding the resurrected Christ who points us back to the Word again and again. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we rejoice this day that Your Word will never fail. It has not failed. Even when there have been times in history when Your people have wondered how is it that Your promises will be fulfilled when we look around and it seems as if everything is against them. Even when Your people were lamenting that they were cast into exile and the throne of David had been destroyed and they're wondering how the promises of God can ever be fulfilled to David when he has no throne. There are times all throughout history 
when we may look around and we wonder, has God's word failed? And what you show us through the life and ministry and the death and resurrection of Christ is the clear fact that your word cannot fail. That we can grab a hold of it and trust in it and know that because you have spoken, your word will be fulfilled. Give us all this hope in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.